This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello from Breaking Banks Europe. This is your co-host Nina Mohanty today with episode 92. Today we have an installment of Breaking Impact and we are talking about migrant-led community banking. And I am super, super excited to be joined by Tori Samples, who's the co-founder and CTO of LEAF. How are you doing, Tori? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, You are sitting in Kigali, so we're very, very excited that you could join us today. We're going a little bit off piece, not the usual European focus, um, but all the same, more of a global focus, I think. So to start out, it would be wonderful if you could tell our audience a little bit about yourself, Tori, um, and kind of what led you to where you are now at LEAF. Sure, happy to. Thank you again for for having me and for allowing me to share a little bit about what we do at LEAF Global Fintech. So LEAF is a digital wallet that helps refugees and migrants primarily to move their money from one place to another and to store it over time. And we noticed that this was a problem because, unfortunately, the global migration crisis is growing and refugees and migrants still don't have many digital financial services options. Banks often will not serve them. Money transfer companies are quite expensive and aren't very convenient if you don't know where you're going or when you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. So we developed LEAF to solve that problem in addition to just the physical risks of anyone carrying cash across borders. We Mm -hmm. did start with refugees and migrants thinking about that use case where someone was physically moving from one country to another, but we Mm -hmm. soon realized that refugees aren't the only ones with this problem. So it also applies to cross-border traders and students, travelers, anyone who is faced with the challenge of moving money across borders without paying through the nose to do that. Uh, It touches on a lot of my background. I've been in and around refugee communities for about 15 years uh, before starting LEAF, mostly in the U.S. And unfortunately, I've seen exactly what happens when someone is forced to leave their money in their country of origin and they don't have an option to bring it with them. So it's a very personal thing for me, uh, but also very exciting on the professional front. I'm a data architect and uh, database designer. So getting the chance to work with new technologies such as blockchain to make all of this possible for a population that historically hasn't had access to those types of services is very exciting. That is amazing. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, I am such a fan of the work that you are all doing um, with LEAF. And I know as well firsthand um, the impact that you, the positive impact that you are having. Uh, I think the most recent estimate from the UN is that there's 82.4 million displaced people around the world. And I think it's worth um, grounding ourselves in current events and perhaps 
uh, contextualizing that right now in this moment, you know, I barely slept last night. I was thinking about the current situation in Afghanistan. Um, I am originally from California, as you can probably tell from my accent. And, you know, it's wildfire season, although it's wildfire season across much of the U.S. And so, you know, for reasons, whether of political instability or climate change, which is increasingly becoming a problem, um, this is such a pressing issue of our time. So it's it's really great to be able to speak to you and hear from you. I, I wonder if you can take us back to the genesis of LEAF, where um, you did mention that, you know, you've got 15 years of working with refugees, mainly in the States, but what was it that brought you over to the African continent and, and made you decide to focus, well, you know, you're based in Kigali, but also operating in um, a few other countries. So what was it about the African continent that really stood out and why LEAF decided to start there? Sure. And there's there's a reason that our name is LEAF Global Fintech. We're, we're very much uh, aspiring to be available and operational in every country around the world. Um, you mentioned the current events in Afghanistan. That's definitely um, front and center in our minds right now. And we're currently not operational there, but looking for ways that we might be able to help because that's exactly the type of crisis situation that LEAF was designed to meet needs for. So um, getting back to the, the genesis of LEAF, the beginning of it, it came out of a business plan competition called the Holt Prize. My my co-founder and I were in graduate school at the time. Um, my co-founder, Nat Robinson, is, is a lawyer. He was uh, getting his law degree at the time, and I was getting my MBA at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. And we signed up for a pitch competition all about the refugee crisis. It's sponsored by the Clinton Foundation every year. There's, there's a new challenge, um, and you have to create sustainable business solutions to social issues. Mm-hmm. So that year, it was all about the refugee crisis. We got randomly assigned to work together and came up with a lot of different ideas, uh, but ended up pitching one that was very different than LEAF. Um, even even more out there than what we've currently is. But we did well with that, got flown out to Dubai, um, almost got a million dollars to go pursue it. And I think it was enough to show us that there was really something there. there there's so much opportunity because nobody is... Well, there's there's been a bit of progress since then, thankfully. But at the time, nobody had really started sustainable businesses aimed at a refugee customer base. So mm-hmm. we saw that um, one of the ideas that we had brainstormed, which was a, a savings product for refugees, might really be able to work. And so over the, the rest of our graduate school time, we were able to, um, to do some market research and found that this is a problem all over the world. So we we looked at Southeast Asia and the Middle East and Latin America and ultimately decided on Africa because of a few things. Um, One, it's a slower burning crisis, which is a better place to start than somewhere like Syria or Afghanistan in the moment, um, just for for getting a startup up and running. So that Mm -hmm. was the first thing. The second was that East Africa has a really nice infrastructure for LEAF to build on top of with mobile money. So you might be familiar with M-Pesa in Kenya. It's been around for a long time. There's a clear regulatory framework for e-money. People are comfortable with that concept. And so it made it easier to build on top of that and to roll out something like LEAF. Um, And then the last reason was that 
My co-founder spent about seven years in Kenya, starting and running a microfinance company. And so he had a lot of connections um, in East Africa. And then I had also lived in Tanzania a couple of times short term. And so it's an area of familiarity for both of us. And we thought it might give us a leg up in getting Leap off the ground. That is brilliant to hear. I think um, having spent a little time um, in East Africa, I can definitely see how all of those things um, come together to to form that decision. Um, and I'm I still like um, awestruck from the one time I was in uh, Masai Mara and there was like an, a little stand and and they were accepting it in pace. And I thought, wow, this is this yep. is incredible. <laughs> so that is something where a lot of us living in the West are like just have no idea how these these things work. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on something that I think y'all at Leaf are are very focused on, which is identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that I have come across with my business looking at migrant communities in their host countries wherever they end up um, for refugee settlement. And so one of the things that we know is, Sometimes refugees um, or asylum seekers have planned ahead, perhaps with, you know, the situation we're seeing in Afghanistan, people were looking at flights that were, you know, getting out of Kabul to Dubai. You were looking at $2,000 flights for a one-way trip, which most people don't have, but perhaps they were able to plan ahead and they could bring a passport if they had one. Um, but oftentimes as well, you're looking at people who are immediately displaced because um, of a fire. And so identification documents are destroyed or they just suddenly have to flee like that overnight. And the you don't really have the wherewithal to think, right, OK, I'm going to you know pack all of okay. these important documents in my birth certificate the way that you you might if you were willfully moving to a new country. So I wonder how you thought about um, identity, identity verification, and how that plays a role in LEAF's current product offering. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge globally. And of course, you see that for anyone. I, I have a lot of friends and colleagues that have moved to Europe in very privileged positions and still struggle to get a bank account. So mm-hmm. it's definitely not um, constricted to just refugees and asylum seekers, but I think that the burden of proof is often even higher for them than someone who's moving in a position of privilege, which is just a you know a, a double slap in the face um, on top of everything that they've lost. So it's definitely a challenge, um, and there's no way around it. If you're able to prepare, that is of course the best position to be in. Um, mm-hmm. You only have a second to grab something. Uh, an, identif- an identity document would probably be best. Mm-hmm. But uh, many of our customers have, they've lost a lot of their identity along the way. So most of our customers, I would say, have some sort of identity document, but mm-hmm. it might not be valid. It might not be government issued. It might be something like a school ID or you know the equivalent of a library card that might have your name on it, but not a picture but it might have an address or it might've been issued by some institution back in the day. So we're, we try to make our solutions as flexible as possible to address the entire range of identity and in different documented forms. We focus a lot on the initial onboarding 
and then verification afterwards. So unfortunately, well, not not unfortunately, but um, but definitely a lot of effort goes into making sure that we can satisfy all regulatory requirements and partnership requirements. So anytime you throw the word refugee out there, people get very nervous because of some prejudices and stereotypes that refugees are terrorists or that they're not documented at all. Um, And so we, we have to address that. And unfortunately that does mean that we have to be pretty conservative, especially at this stage of, of leaf in opening accounts for people. So we do go through a full KYC process. We're able to run names um, through all of the international databases to make sure that they're not on any of the watch lists or um, sanctions lists, anything like that. So mm-hmm. there is that initial burden of we have to have some form of identity document. Um, and then after that, things become a bit more flexible. So we're actually building out an identity verification system that at its core is a distributed identity protocol so that someone could, once they're in the system, they can be verified by any entity in the world, even in offline environments, because it is distributed without exposing any PII. So that that's kind of the gold standard that we're trying to get to of once you're a Leaf customer, it's not that Leaf owns your identity in a centralized fashion, but we're going to make that available for any organization in the world, whether it's an aid agency or a government who's interested in that person, to be able to ping verifiable credentials against that system and say with a you know varying degrees of confidence, yes, this is this person, no, that's not that person. So that's that's what we're getting to. We're also working on ways to make that onboarding more flexible. So we currently are able to accept UNHCR-issued refugee IDs, which is mm-hmm. great because that means that we're able to serve refugees in camps or who have been through the asylum-seeking process. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to make that even more flexible. So getting down to you know biometrics and um, social proof that someone is who they say they are, mm-hmm. uh, that's that's all in the works, but admittedly difficult and complicated. And um, I think more than that, it's it's about explaining it to partners that we work with so that they're able to accept that burden of proof in the same way that we are. I think that brings us to a really interesting thing that I've come across. Uh, and, and you mentioned there, so for those that are unfamiliar, PII is personal identifiable information. I'm, am I right there? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And so when we're talking about PII, it's not just from a regulatory framework, but oftentimes when we're talking about displaced people, um, refugees, asylum seekers, in my experience, oftentimes there's a huge concern from the person, him or herself, um, themselves, where they are fearful of being um, tracked down. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if, if fleeing a political situation, for example, um, I've worked with a lot of settled refugees here in the UK who do not wish to have their photos shared, do not wish to be, you know, part of a case study names are changed to protect their identity because there is such a fear of, of being found out by whatever it was or whomever it was they were fleeing, um, from their home country. And so, I think there's a certain aspect of trust there that comes with it because especially for for you at at Leaf Global, you are bringing on this identity, you're bringing on something that's very important to them in terms of moving money around. So that's like 
double whammy in terms of like, we have to trust you. So how have you gone about building trust in these communities? I mean, I think, as you say, you know, working with the UNHCR, for example, and and accepting their identification perhaps gives you some um, validity, but how has that journey been in gaining customer trust? Sure. A few thoughts on that. One, data privacy and protection standards are often compromised for vulnerable people groups, and that is incredibly unfortunate. We see that people serving those groups often expect them not to care about data privacy or data protection, data security, because they're in a compromised state already. And as you've shared, that's not the case. These Mm -hmm. are still people. They were not refugees before they were refugees, and they were used to being treated as customers and as normal people. So just the fact that they've become a refugee does not mean that the standard should be any lower than it is for anyone else in the way that customers are, well, maybe not customers, but in the way that um, those people are treated and their data is treated and protected. So that's that's the first thought uh, and mm-hmm. definitely the ethic at least in how we treat people. Yeah. But then focusing more on the trust side, there are two primary strategies that we that we use to establish trust. One is in being a commercial for-profit company. It's a bit counterintuitive, but we've seen that establishing clear accountability in paying for a service helps mm-hmm. establish trust with people. It's yep. also part of um, showing showing the dignity that we see in people. So it's not that they're a beneficiary. It's not that leaf services are a handout. It's that these people, even if they're not paying much, they are paying for a service and there is dignity in choice. So we find that that that's that goes a little bit of the way. You know, we people don't have to wonder about our motives or why we're doing this. We can say, like, well, we're we're here because we're providing a service in order to make money. We're also helping people along the way, but we are a business. So that's one. And then two is getting established in those communities and allowing our representatives to be, or our representation to come from within the community. So that's where a lot of my connections within refugee communities resettled in the U.S. came into play at the beginning, and now we've been able to expand that. Um, One thing that has been really fun is to actually hire people within refugee and migrant communities to be informal sales agents for LEAF so that the words coming out of their mouth are their own and they're able to, to represent LEAF to their community in a way that makes sense to them. So basically anyone with a smartphone can do this. It's not that there are employees. It's kind of an Uber driver-like model where anybody yeah. with a smartphone can help other people register for leave and they're able to make a commission on that. So that's that's been really fun to see. And then also with that, there's there's so much trust that comes through organic marketing within those communities. Uh, but it's also very, very cheap and very effective. So mm-hmm. in finding our way into those communities and then allowing the word of mouth cycle to take over, it's actually, I think, the the best marketing strategy just across the board. We also do digital marketing and you know above the line and below the line marketing, but but I think that the word of mouth patterns are the most viral and come with the most trust and they're the cheapest. So that's the the route that we try to pursue within different communities. That's amazing. I think one last thing that I want to touch on before we go to break is um, fundraising. So 
This is always kind of the elephant in the room. And your point earlier about the fact that you're a for-profit company is something that I myself have come up against quite often where for many institutional investors, for angel investors, they perhaps look at refugees or the plight of migrants as being charitable. It's it's not something that, you know, has the potential for venture backable growth in their minds, um, you know, or, or there is this wariness. It, it kind of goes either way. One where it's like, actually, you should treat it as a charity or the other is we feel bad making money off, <laughs> off the backs mm-hmm. of refugees or um, and this is something I've come across in my fundraising discussion. So I'm curious for you, you know, your origins were kind of based in a social impact um, kind of funding grant situation, but how you have found navigating, you know, the world of, of venture capital, of, of institutional investing, where there is huge amounts of social impact to what you're doing. But as you said, you are making money, you are for profit, and there is a huge opportunity and a huge TAM in the, in the words of, of, of venture capital. So how has that journey been for you? It's a conversation that we have almost daily. Um, we, we've come up against both sides of it, as you've said. So it's not that every investor has the same viewpoint on that, which makes it even more difficult sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, but, but there are, I don't want to say there are ways around the conversation, but at the end of the day, if the foundation is solid, the foundation is solid. So that's that's what we're up against is showing investors that this is a solid business opportunity and that um, there are there are ways to make money and impact people's lives in a positive way um, by doing that. But I think um, COVID has forced us to be very creative. So we we definitely fundraise uh, from all the traditional VC channels, but we've also received funding from grants, as you mentioned, um, government programs for the commercialization of new technologies, mm-hmm. uh, accelerators, all sorts of things. And, and so we've been, we've been very creative in that, um, because, because we've, we've had to be with COVID just to, just to make it through. Um, but then also to get enough traction to show traditional VCs that this is scalable and exciting as as a as a business opportunity. So I would say um, overall, we we tell the story in different ways to different people. There's no way around that. Uh, if we're talking to a VC who cares less about the impact side, then of course, we're going to focus on the fact that LEAF is not just for refugees. Um, we, yep. we designed it with refugees in mind, but anybody in the world can download LEAF and use it. So there's no checkbox that says, are you a refugee? And, and we can point to the unit economics to show it doesn't matter if you're a refugee or not. Here's our average transaction size and the flow that's coming through the system. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the story that we'll tell to a, a just purely profit-minded VC. If we're talking to an impact investor, because we can all we can also have those conversations, then we'll talk about how many lives we're impacting in what ways by opening up financial services. And yeah. we'll talk about you know the underlying profit. So I think it's it's more just about knowing how to communicate with different groups and what each one cares about. 
we definitely play in a lot of spaces. We've, we've opened up a lot of doors for ourselves, but that also makes things a little bit more complicated because yeah. with any, in any given week, we're speaking to fintech VCs, blockchain and crypto investors, impact investors, um, UN or, or government-based grant providers. So it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a challenge, but also it's been really fun to get to know all of those different groups and to see what's being covered within the funding landscape and where the opportunities still are as well. Brilliant. Well, Tori, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you today. I have learned so much. I am personally so inspired by what you're building. Um, would you be able to share where our listeners can find out more about Leaf Global, where they can get in touch with you if they're interested in doing so? Absolutely. You can always visit our website at leafglobalfintech.com or find us on social media at leafglobaltech. Happy for you to reach out to me directly. My email address is tori at leafglobalfintech.com. Thanks so much again for having me, Nina. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. And hope to see you. I, I should make a trip over to Kigali soon because um, it would be definitely brilliant. always welcome. Right. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. At timepledge.org, we are building the largest free coaching and advisory platform for entrepreneurs by providing mentorship opportunities based on pledge time. Our network of seasoned industry experts acting as coaches is working for free, pledging their valued time to the next generation of entrepreneurs who will change everything. Our portfolio of sessions goes over every skill an entrepreneur needs to successfully launch his or her startup, from how to pitch and behave with investors to how to best market your idea online or even how to best manage your team. We have the perfect sessions with the perfect mentors. Want to learn how to become the best entrepreneur you can be or mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia? Please visit timepledge.com org and let's get you started. And welcome back to Breaking Banks Europe, episode 92, Breaking Impact. And today we're speaking about migrant-led communities. And I'm really, really excited because um, someone who is a friend, um, a fellow co-host, and someone I look to for so much inspiration is uh, the guest in the second half. Um, so most of our listeners will be used to to uh, listening to Nina ask excellent questions to our guests on Breaking Bank Europe. But today um, I'm going to be asking her all the questions <laughs> about uh, Bloom, which is um, the startup that she has founded. So Nina, welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. Um, <laughs> We've got a case of the giggles. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's too early. <laughs> so Nina, when when did you start Bloom? What is Bloom? Give us give us the rundown. Yeah, absolutely. Well, very excited to be here in the guest seat uh, for once on Breaking Banks Europe. Um, Bloom started out as a question, really, of are we doing enough in financial services for migrant communities, and. I have been fascinated with the intersection of migration and financial services for 
quite some time now, not least because my parents are both immigrants to the U.S. I am an immigrant here. Um, MJ, I believe you're also um, an immigrant. And I have lived in Vienna. I've lived in Paris. I've lived in London. And I myself, as someone who is probably classified as a white collar worker, has experienced the challenges of opening a bank account, trying to build up a credit score or get, you know, services in a culturally specific space and really struggling to. And so it was kind of at the beginning of last year, pre, you know, the lockdowns across Europe of coronavirus that I started having conversations with anyone that would speak to me, frankly. (laughs) I was speaking to asylum seekers who were in asylum accommodation, refugees who've been settled and working now, um, migrant workers, domestic workers, you know, living in Mayfair and cleaning houses. And the people that have in the past year and a half really made up what we call essential workers or key Mm -hmm. workers. And these are the people who are stocking our shelves um, at the grocery store, who are driving our, our buses or our tubes or transportation, who are cleaning our offices and making sure that we are safe. And so it was very important to me to try and understand if we are doing our jobs and serving them the way that they deserve to be served. And I found um, that we were missing the mark. Mm -hmm. And this was something that I found consistently that started to itch at me over my career in fintech is I felt I was constantly building products for the same person. Mm -hmm. And that person was usually, um, you know, an urban dwelling, white collar person who has disposable income. And that's great because, you know, that describes me, that describes us. um, And that's brilliant that there's people building products for us. But it really felt like we were missing out on the potential to help so many more people live empowered and prosperous lives. And so um, I left Klarna where I was uh, working on new products and, and expansion into new markets and step forth to build Bloom, which is basically digitizing and formalizing existing behaviors. And what I mean by that is what we find is there are a lot of informal financial systems that crop up all around us that are often very Mm community-driven. And you can think of of them as small as a family all pitching in to send someone off to uni or, you know, pitching in for someone to go home or something my dad would do often is, you know, he'd take a bunch of stuff back to India for people for them and arrange for that. And often it's centered around community. So what we're doing is taking these behaviors, these informal systems and digitizing them and formalizing them. Cool. I mean, I think that it sounds yeah, I, I mean, there's so so many facets that I, I, I find really interesting and incredible. And I think, you know, from, from my experience, um, dealing with more European-based fintechs and banks that are looking to expand, it's always, you know, even though we're, you know, living in, well, I'm living in Europe, you're living in the UK now, <laughs> you know, each, each European country, you know, there's, there's different nuances and everything. So I think that that's really the epitome of a customer centric solution and looking 
to take the, you know, in informal and community-based banking products and services and offer those to folks that are, you know, living in, are you just offering Bloom in the UK initially or? Yeah. So we are currently looking at getting set up and regulated in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, We are very much looking forward to a future where we're more available on the continent. And this is something that I often wax lyrical about. MJ, you're used to this is, you know, especially given the current events, um, what's happening in Afghanistan, Mm. there was a giant earthquake in Haiti recently, and there's now, you know, a tropical storm headed its way. And, you know, we know with climate change that there's a lot changing and people from the global South are fleeing and disproportionately are ending up in their neighboring countries. But those that are able to are often coming to Europe, um, or coming to the UK, whether that's because they have familial connections here already or because of colonial ties and perhaps they speak the language. Um, So there's lots of reasons why we want to look onto the continent. We know that, you know, under the leadership of Chancellor Angela Merkel, years ago, there was a huge intake of Syrian refugees during that crisis. And there's large swaths of people across Germany, France, Spain, Italy, that could definitely benefit from having tailored products for them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, so how are you, how are you taking these informal kind of ways of of banking and financially supporting the community and making that, is it app-based or? Yeah, so what we're doing is bringing it all together into something that is accessible. And when we talk about accessibility, I think that's a huge part of financial inclusion that we often don't talk about. Um, And we we kind of go, okay, we've given everyone a bank account. Mm -hmm. And so all is well. And that's their financial included end of story. When really there is so much more that goes into financial inclusion, including financial accessibility. So For example, when we talk about financial literacy, oftentimes in the UK, and I'm sure on the continent, the literacy part, as in literacy in a common language like English or German or whatever, is a huge barrier. So if you have a new migrant who speaks a little bit of English, but let's face it, is not prepared to read T's and C's, of your app in English, that can be a huge barrier. Something like signing up for a loan can suddenly become quite tedious and and frustrating and challenging when you don't understand what a word like APR means or, or, sorry, an acronym like APR or interest or financial ombudsman, whatever all these words mean, you know? So one is the language barrier, which is why um, we have been working with some brilliant translators to make sure that any of our financial literacy content is translated into um, as many languages as possible. But also things like making sure that it's accessible um, both in the app format. So we know that, for example, migrant communities disproportionately are Android users. So maybe contrary to the Clubhouse debacle where it was only available (laughs) for iOS um, operating systems, yeah, for, for Apple phones, what we're looking to do is to be Android first um, and and build it out that way. 
Another thing we're taking into consideration is um, a large swath of the communities we aim to serve is uh, Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so for those communities, it's really important to have Sharia compliant financial services that is in line with their faith. And oftentimes they're kind of unable to participate where they would perhaps like to because it's not something that's in line with their faith. And so we're making Bloom Sharia compliant by default, which can be a bit shocking as we're not actively trying to brand ourselves as an Islamic bank or an Mm -hmm. Islamic, you know, finance provider, but we're just doing it as a default so that we can increase the pie. And obviously that doesn't matter to someone who say, a Nigerian Pentecostal Christian, but for them, it's just a matter of it being ethical and sustainable. Um, But that really makes all the difference for someone who is Muslim. So really looking at accessibility from lots of different angles. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think from the majority of um, Islamic banking fintechs in in Europe that I've seen, I mean, there aren't so many of them, but, you know, doesn't seem that that accessibility and um, focus on financial literacy is there. It's, you know, almost, uh, okay, let's take a Monzo and a Starling and make it um, Sharia compliant. And it doesn't, you know, it, it seems that it's, again, you know, I don't want to say targeted for the same people, but for, you know, white collar workers, yeah. people, you know, that are, you know, have, have been established here and may have came here, you know, out of, uh, you know, th- their own will rather than, you know, circumstances that have forced them to come here. Mm-hmm. So how how big is the opportunity then? Well, this is something that I think I come back to all the time in that when people think about Bloom and our target market, we are often talking about perhaps lower income individuals um, or what we would perceive, I should say, as lower income individuals. Um, And we think of perhaps brown and black communities. And so oftentimes the immediate reaction from uh, potential investors, from people that I speak to about what we're building is, oh, well, it's a charity, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and there isn't that big of a market. But we know from current events that actually that TAM just keeps growing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. But what we've done recently is actually model out the population growth. And one of the things that we found is both on the European continent and in the UK, the natural population is declining. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the only thing that's contributing to population growth over the next 20 years is migration. Yeah. Um, so in large part, this is due to the fact that, you know, you've got, well, recently coronavirus, unfortunately, but then um, as kind of the baby boomer generation starts to get older and starts to pass, which was a large, obviously, demographic following World War II, um, you know, we, we aren't at replacement fertility or what yeah. it's called to replace the people that are leaving us. And Mm -hmm. so the biggest contribution to growth is migration. And so what we're looking at by the year 2030 is, you know, 83 million migrants across Europe. Yeah. And that number, as I said, is growing. And so what we're looking at is, you know, across the UK and Europe by 2030. So pretty much in eight years is going to be 
a market worth 63 billion pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is something that, you know, when I explain this to people, they're always shocked and they're like, how can it be so big? Yeah. And I, I kind of turn it around on them and go, you know, in your daily life, you might not notice them all around you, but they are there. You just have to open your eyes and see them. And whether that's someone, you know, um, doing your nails or cleaning your office or whatever, or cleaning your apartment, they're, they're everywhere. And, and so we firmly believe not only is it a huge opportunity, but it's a worthwhile thing, problem to solve. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that that got me thinking. I mean, I know in in Germany, like the there's a higher the the entrepreneurs and small business owners tend to be migrants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know also in in the States, I've read a few articles and, and stories about, yeah, how I think migrants specifically from, from the Balkans, how, you know, how successful they've become as entrepreneurs and, and everything. And I was speaking to a small community bank in the U.S. that focuses on um, the U.S. armed forces. And they said that most of their clients start out as, you know, 18, 19 year olds joining the armed forces, most of the time, you know, in some debt and, you know, that bank sticks with them and works with them. And they said, you know, 30 years later, these, these people have, you know, a, a million dollars under, yeah. you know, throughout their um, financial portfolio and everything. So I think that it's not, it's also, you know, the migrant community is very dynamic, very entrepreneurial and, you know, by supporting them and, um, you know, being their first financial institution support, I think, you know, by you're gaining loyalty and 30 yeah. years down the line, you know, I think it's... Uh... And, and that's the thing. It really resonated with me. I was speaking to our friend, Jamie, who's the co-founder of Fronted here in the UK. And he he was telling me that he listened to a talk or something, but it has stuck with me where the person speaking basically said, you know, you can make your target demographic as well. Yeah. And so often we talk about in financial services, who are the really lucrative mm. customers and everyone's mind goes to high net worth individuals yeah. or, you know, kind of the Henry's high earners, not rich yet, who will become high net worths. But actually there is, there is something to be said of putting in the work to become that trusted partner and as someone who is very entrepreneurial or who has already shown the willpower to cross borders to yeah. create a better life starts to gain net worth to be a loyal customer to you. And I think there's something very beautiful in that. And that's why, mm -hmm. you know, at Bloom, perhaps it's a bit cheesy, but we're always talking about prosperity and we talk about how can we increase the prosperity for our customers so that in turn they can be prosperous with their families and into their communities. And so this is um, poetic and cheesy and wonderful and, yeah. and why I love waking up every morning to work yeah. on this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely not a charity because I think, you know, it's the combination of building a sustainable business, but helping people and, generating revenue. So I guess how, what are kind of, what's your thoughts on in the early stages, how to, you know, find this balance between sustainability and making money? Yeah, I think, well, you know me and as someone who's worked 
has worked in fintech for a while. Um, it's it's things like being very upfront um, about what it is we're trying to do. So we do charge fees. That's how we monetize. And we are way past the time when challenger banks could posit that we're doing everything for free and mm-hmm. we'll make money at scale off of interchange or something. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. But actually, it's about being really upfront and saying, this is the value that we're going to bring to you in exchange for these fees that you're going to be paying. Um, and, and keeping in mind things like constantly speaking to customers. And I think you and I are very similar in that regard. I get all of my energy from being around customers, speaking to them. And lucky for me, I don't even have to get them all together into a focus group to chat with them. I can just go down to the market or go to Brixton and have a chat with a small business owner with, you know, someone sat next to me on the bus and asked them about how they're finding things in financial services. So in that regard, I'm I'm very lucky to have a constant feedback loop. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, once we're regulated and launched that this, well, hopefully, will, um, will mean that it will be a very robust and um, valuable product. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I have absolutely no doubts. So, what are what are the next steps? What what's the roadmap look like in the next twelve months? Yeah, so we are um, about to embark on a on a fundraising journey, um, but right now, most of the work has been done um, working with the regulator, who have been wonderful, um, making sure that we are keeping. Um, customers and their protection at the front of mind as always we're doing a lot of community building as well Mm -hmm. and this is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of um institutional investors where i read somewhere that um you know half of the money raised by b2c companies is basically going straight to google or facebook ads Mm. and with for us, you know, obviously that adds to the cost of acquisition, but for us, we are looking at a very different approach and and blame my Obama days perhaps, but we're really taking a grassroots approach and getting to know, you know, whether it's housing associations where these people are actually living or um, charities that they work with or, you know, going to meet faith leaders in various communities. So that is a big part of what I spend my time doing. Um, and then, of course, starting to build um, everything and put it all together so that once we're regulated, we're able to launch and get into as many hands as possible. Nice, nice. Well, I'm I'm really excited to see how everything, uh, yeah, how everything comes into place in the coming months. And I'm sure all of our listeners and everyone in the fintech community will be watching this um, closely. So where can our listeners find out more about Bloom? Yeah, so you can find uh, more about us on Twitter at Bloom underscore money underscore um, or at bloommoney.co, C-O. Or you can find me on Twitter as well at Nina Mohanty. And I'm always happy to chat about all things financial inclusion and Bloom. 
Cool. Nina, thank you so much. And thanks so much for sharing what you've been up to. And yeah, all the best. I know you're going to be super successful. Um, and again, I, I, it's something that I think fintech and financial services, this is a product service and offering that we you know, desperately need. Thanks, MJ. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.